Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back after uh, a little bit of, I don't know if you'd call it a break, uh, but uh, spring break. And uh, you all had Michael DeFazio sub for me as well one week. I was speaking up north, and uh, I was able to listen to that uh, session, I think, earlier this week on uh, one and a half speed, which Michael's fast enough already. And man, listen on one and a half speed, I was, I was wanting to sprint down the street. Um, but I am uh, grateful for him uh, spending that time with you all and allowing me to, uh, to continue the class, but also meet some of the responsibilities that I had. Uh, we are going to start today in Acts chapter 13, uh, but for the sake of uh, remembering where we came from, uh, we want to back up not only in the previous two chapters and review where we've been, but I also want to use that as a frame uh, to understand these next two chapters, chapters 13 and 14, because this begins to uh, answer this question, how did we get here in the church uh, the book of Acts, one of, one of its purposes, one of its goals is to answer this question, how did we get here? How did we get to the place to where the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles and they worship together and they worship all over the Roman world? How did that happen? Because that, in the ancient context, is an unthinkable thought. I mean, think about it. Just before Peter, Acts chapter 10, Jews didn't even go into a home to eat with Gentiles. And now the church is sitting around tables and gathering around and taking even the Lord's Supper and eating together and calling each other brother and sister. How did we get here? And now you have church leaders, we're going to see in Antioch, that are diverse, very diverse, from different places, even different ethnic backgrounds, different social. One is in the court of Herod and, and his court. How did we get here where poor people are hanging out with wealthy people and they're coming together and they're acting like they belong together? How did we get here? So this question in the book of Acts hangs over the entire book, but it especially starts to get answered here in what we call Paul's, uh, I'm just going to loosely call it Paul's first missionary journey. And I want you to understand, like, sometimes we have some stereotypes of what we mean when we say that, don't we? Um, some of you grew up with missionaries or were missionaries. Some of you grew up with missionaries visiting your home church with slide projectors, right? And sometimes you have maybe some preconceived ideas of what missionaries are. And yet we could also look at Paul and say, well, he goes on this, I think it's over a thousand miles. It's, I think it's 1,200 miles if you count it all up. 1,200 mile trip, probably about a year or two, maybe two years, a two year long trip. He plants churches or he establishes disciples in key cities, and then he goes back to those key cities to make sure that they're all doing well, continuing to establish leadership or those who are more mature in their faith to help mature those who are younger in their faith. And then he goes back to Antioch. I mean, that's what we're going to do today, is Paul's going to take a trip, he's going to go out, and he's going to come back. And there's going to be some events that happen in the meantime. Uh, We're going to do our best to try to trace those, but this first missionary journey of Paul is going to begin to answer this question, and it's going to cause a crisis. How did we get here? Because what we've gone through is Peter's dream, Peter going to Cornelius the centurion in Caesarea, then Peter reporting that back to the church, hey, this really did happen. If the Holy Spirit came on those who were Gentiles, who am I, even Peter, to stop them? And then Michael, last time we were together, uh, had this uh, kind of an allegory, or this metaphor he used to talk about the pause. Like, what is God doing in the pause, in the mundane moments of time? And he walked through with you chapter 11 and 12. Uh, what I've tried to do is give you kind of just nine quick bullet points to review what happened in chapters 11 and 12, uh, whether, whether or not you were here, so that we can get to where we need to go in chapter 13. So let me just read through those if, if I can this morning. Uh, number one. The scattered believers, because of Stephen's persecution, or the persecution that started because of Saul and Stephen, were scattered. Some of those scattered believers landed on the island of Cyprus, which on your last page is a little little island that we're going to go to today. Now you need to know this about Cyprus. Barnabas, Joseph Barnabas, is from Cyprus, the son of encouragement. So Barnabas is going to be a key player in all of this, and we're going to go back to his home island 
here a little bit later. So this, this little island of Cyprus has happened before. So going back to chapter 11, some of the believers scattered during Stephen's persecution were from Cyprus. They came to Antioch and they started preaching to the Hellenistic people there, the Greek people there, and they became believers. And wind of this came down to Jerusalem and they went, okay, more Gentiles, what are we going to do? How did we get here? Okay, so we need to send a delegation up. Makes sense to send Barnabas. Some of them are from Cyprus, from his hometown. So they go up to Antioch. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is always sent into difficult circumstances. Here he is again, and he's encouraging them. Bullet point number two. Bullet point number three, they are called Christians first day Antioch. This is a good thing for us to remember, that this label that we wear is a label to designate the one whom we follow. It's easy to sometimes, and, and I have experienced this in some of my own walk, for us to throw on the label, slap on the label, and then not actually look like Jesus. This name means little Christ's. Uh, whether that's pejorative, they were making fun of believers, or like Michael and I would both agree, this is something they took on themselves to say, let's call ourselves little Christ. Let's look like him. Now, this should remind you of maybe one of the Ten Commandments. I didn't have this in my notes. But the Ten Commandments, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, I grew up thinking in movies, you shouldn't just use Jesus' name as a cuss word in movies or on the playground. And yes, it does mean that. But more than that, it actually can be translated this way. Do not take on the Lord's name in vain. Do not wear the Lord's name with emptiness and wear that label, wear that name, and then not live it out. Oh, that's more rich, isn't it? It's not just don't say God is a cuss word or say Jesus' name is a cuss word. It's don't put his name on you and then not live like him. So can we, maybe this morning for first point of application, ask this question, do I take on the Lord's name in vain when I wear the name Christ but don't live like him in my home, with my family, with my spouse, with my neighbor at work? What does that look like? Now, there's obviously some grace in that as well. But there's a challenge in that, to be a disciple of Jesus, even when we face opposition or difficulty. So they were called Christians first in Antioch. Number four, Barnabas and Saul. Uh, notice in, in up until the, our chapter today, Barnabas is always going to be listed first. And in just a few chapters, we're going to switch it. And Saul's going to be named Paul. And Barnabas is going to be named after him. As in, like, there actually is going to be a significant switch in who is the leader of this whole shebang. And Barnabas, I love this about Barnabas, son of encouragement, seems to be okay with that. There's going to be some conflict, though, over a little guy named John, I call him little, little guy, young guy named John Mark. Because Barnabas is going to want to encourage John Mark. So we're going to notice this dynamic that takes place. But notice here, Barnabas and Saul, they're going to go from Antioch up north, Antioch in Syria, and you can see that in your map um, a little bit later. We're going to have two Antiochs, which is going to get confusing. Okay? But they're going to go from Antioch up on the coastline. And they're going to go down, still in the Syrian province, the Roman province, down to Jerusalem. And they're going to bring relief for the famine to the people. Now think about how strange this is. The Gentile people are giving money to their Jewish, let's just say, parents of the faith, who came to the faith, the Messiah, who passed the Messiah down to them, and now their role is to honor them. Thus, the honor your mother and father is not just treat them with respect, it's also to financially take care of them when they're older. It's social security. And so they are, with this famine relief, taking care of these brothers and sisters that normally, previous to chapter 10, wouldn't have eaten with them. Think about how this question is getting answered. How did we get here? The church is showing components of love that have never been seen between two people groups. The chapters that we're going to study today are likely behind Paul's writing of one of his first letters. This is where we start to make some connections. Because at this point in time, Paul is going to start his letter writing ministry. And it's likely around this time, a little bit later than where we'll be today, that Paul writes the book of Galatians to some of these churches we're going to visit in our time together today. So this is intriguing as we answer this question. How did we get here? Number five, James, the brother of John, as in the sons of thunder, is killed by Herod. And we find out that this is during Passover. Oh, Passover. 
That sounds like something we've seen before. A Herod involved in the killing of someone in Jerusalem during Passover? Oh yeah, the church looks like Jesus. Remember James and John, sons of thunder? They come up to Jesus, say, Jesus, we want to sit on your right and left. We want the seats of glory. He's, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Oh yeah, we can be baptized with the baptism you're baptized with. Boy, I said that way faster than I thought I could. And James is the first one to receive what he asked for. It's interesting to me that James and John wanted to be on Jesus' right and left, and they are the first and the last of the 12 disciples to die. That's intriguing to me. James is persecuted and a martyr. John lives his life out, likely into, if church history is correct, into his 90s and dies, but in exile. Thus he writes the book of Revelation in exile from the island of Patmos. They're, they are the right and left of the 12. I don't know that, that I don't want to make that too allegorical, but I find that rather intriguing when it comes to these two sons of thunder who wanted to be great. And Jesus says, I, I, I like that in you, that you want to be great. But let me define greatness. Because whoever wants to truly be great must become a servant. Oh, James and John become great. John becomes the beloved. James becomes one who is martyred for his faith. And we see that this persecution becomes a threat for Peter. Peter is miraculously set free. It looks like this exodus kind of moment. The doors are set free. Peter's released. The church is praying. They can't believe their own ears because they were praying and they didn't expect God to answer in the way that he did. And Peter's set free. And, and we notice this, that James, another James, is going to be mentioned in Jerusalem. Go tell James this. I thought James was just killed. This James is James, the brother of Jesus. And we're going to see him again in chapter 15. So I want to just highlight, by way of review, highlight, oh, who is this? James, the brother of Jesus, becomes a believer after the resurrection. We learn about this in Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians as well. And think about the significance of this moment. That he was not a believer up until the crucifixion or resurrection. After the resurrection, becomes a believer and becomes one of the core leaders in the church in Jerusalem. So he's an elder, we would call him, and we will see him called an elder in Jerusalem. Later on, we're going to see him in, in Acts chapter 15 play a very significant part in the how did we get here answer. So how do we treat Gentiles? And we find him other places, as in like the book of James. And we find another brother of Jesus, as in the book of Jude. His name is Judas. That's not a great name for a brother, by the way. But Jude was actually a very popular name. Jude or Judas. Um, Jude being a, a tribe of Judah, uh, but also being one of the warrior kings in the Maccabean Revolt, 167 BC. So, so, we, have this, yeah, so we have this dynamic to where Jesus' brothers have been converted, and where they're going to come back on the scene. We want to pay attention to that. Uh, bullet point number eight. Herod Agrippa, he was, he was the grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, he actually grew up in Rome. Uh, he was, uh, grew up in Rome. He was very much uh, uh, educated in the Roman system. Um, and so we have this dynamic where he is in Caesarea. He's talking to two regions, Tyre and Sidon, who are north of him. He claims to be a god. The, Her the Herods did this, by the way. They built pool houses with silver or gold backgrounds. You could kind of imagine if this white where that and the sun were to rise and it'd reflect. And then you wear, you, you wear a bright, I mean, you could just Super Bowl halftime show kind of, act, you know, kind of background. And, and all of a sudden, you know, this guy's claiming to be a god because this is, this is Roman after all. Uh, emperors were often seen as gods posthumously. And now, sometimes even while they are alive, thus we have the worship of emperors starting to happen even in Caesarea. And Herod wants a piece of that. And God, as, as Michael said in our last session, God timed it perfectly to where whatever had been growing in Herod's belly uh, consumed him at that moment. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, not writing from a Christian worldview or from a biblical worldview, talks about him leaning over and crying for five days about the pain that was going on in his belly. Um, and then he passes away. So very short reign uh, for this grandson of Herod the Great, um, but he is obviously in this moment responsible for uh, the death of James and what's taken place here. You can imagine that in, as in any kind of time, um, this causes once again upheaval in the political system in Jerusalem. And that's going to play a significant part. Even as Paul's going to come back around, we're going to see Paul on trial 
And like James, who dies under Herod, Paul's going to be on trial under someone like a Pilate, Felix and Festus, their governors. So a Pilate, part two and three, and another Herod. So what do we have in the book of Acts? Just like Jesus, so James and Peter, although Peter is, is able to, there's almost this like resurrection kind of echo to that, isn't there? James is killed. Peter's expecting to die, but the tomb is opened. The jail is opened miraculously, and he's let out. Have you seen that? Oh, we have death, burial, resurrection kind of in that little echo right there. And there's this promise for us that even though we die like James, we'll be raised like Peter because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so this is the story. This is what leads us up to this. And at the very end, here's bullet point number nine, Barnabas, Saul, and John Mark go back up north to Antioch. And they go back up from that famine relief, and this is where we start today. So all good stories kind of have to remind you where we got here, right? I'm watching some stories. Wintertime, I tend to watch TV a little bit more. I'm watching some stories, and every now and again, they'll have six scenes or nine scenes that say, here's how we got to where we are. And after break, I feel like that's going to be helpful for us. We're going to see two Antiochs today, Antioch in Syria and Antioch in Pisidia. I don't know that I'm pronouncing that right. But let me just give you a little bit of a scholarly hint. Um, if you say it fast enough, people are convinced you're saying it right, okay? Especially like Hebrew words. We don't, it's a dead language. We don't really know how Hebrew is pronounced. So just say it really fast. Those Old Testament names, say it really fast. You'll be convincing. You'll be okay. Um, but we're going to be in two Antiochs. Uh, there were as many as five, from the research I've done, five Antiochs in the ancient world, especially in this region. Why? Okay, you probably, this is more than what you paid for or bargained for. There was a king, Maccabean period, 167, okay? Seleucid king, so this is post-Julius Caesar. His name was Antiochus IV. He was the one who came in and and, uh, uh, sacrificed pigs on the temple uh, in Jerusalem. And there were some other atrocious things that happened in 167. Thus caused the Maccabean revolt of the Jewish people. That's why we have the celebration of, of Hanukkah. Okay, the celebration of lights, the restoration of the temple is because of the Maccabean period. Well, Antiochus, okay, Antioch. Antiochus, Antioch. You have a leader and cities named after that leader. Okay, obviously not just him, but also he's the fourth, also leaders that predate him. So it's not a surprise we have these various cities called Antioch in the same way Alexander. Why do you have Alexander? Well, here's why. Because Alexander the Great. So with this, we have the Syrian Antioch, which is the Roman province that Israel is in. And we have the Pisidian Antioch, which is the province we're going to get to uh, in modern day, I think it's still in Turkey, modern day Turkey. And and we'll get up to that region again. That's part of the reason for that map. Uh, Let me talk just briefly about this map. You may want more resources like this. And I don't think you can read the, the fine print on this that tells you where I got this from is really fine print. And so I want to give you a website that I found helpful for these kinds of things. Um, It's called Visual Unit. Visual Unit. I think it's .me. Yeah. .me. Um, This is a a graphic artist who actually has spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, crafting various graphics like this for uh, Bible study aids. So an example, we did Pentecost. He has a map showing you where all the people who were at in Jerusalem at Pentecost, where they were from. Um, so it's really helpful, uh, again, just for a common everyday person trying to study the Bible. Uh, my yearly Bible reading plan is from this gentleman. Uh, he just mapped out kind of a nice graphic of all of the books of the Bible, how many chapters are in each of the books of the Bible. And so over and over again, I'll, if I'm doing a personal Bible study or trying to teach, I'll go to that website and see what he's done uh, that might help me visually see or understand uh, what that is. So again, sometimes those tools are helpful for you. Um, let's talk briefly about the first missionary journey. This is going to be chapters 13 and 14. This is, our, this is where we'll be today. Again, it's not a surprise. Paul, his strategy is going to be exactly what we see in the book of Acts. Paul's going to go to the synagogue first, offer the Messiah and the good news of the, the gospel to the Jewish people in the synagogue. It's often going to be accompanied by the reading of Scripture, as in the Old Testament. Here's what Paul says to Timothy, who was raised Jewish by his grandmother and his mother. All Scripture is God-breathed 
And you have known the scriptures from infancy, Timothy, and they're able to make you wise for salvation. Now, that's 1 Timothy 3, summarizing chapters 3, verses, I think it's 15 through 17. And what Paul is saying there is, Timothy, when it comes to those of you who are Jewish, the scriptures help point the way that Jesus is the Messiah that God had been planning to bring. God's, God's not having the church or Jesus be this like part two plan B because the first one didn't work. This was the plan all along. And so part of the strategy for Paul on this first missionary journey will be to offer that grace and that good news of the Messiah that has come to the Jewish people. Some of them will accept. This is not just a Gentile church. Uh, this is very much a Jewish Messiah. And we as Gentiles, if you have Jewish background, um, then I'm obviously here not speaking to you, that we as Gentiles are grafted into that. Like, it is a gift to us to be grafted into God's people, um, but it is theirs to be offered first. And Paul says this in other places, Romans and Galatians, over and over again. So we'll see that strategy happen, and notice I've given you the references. Chapter 13 all the way to chapter 19. Paul's going to do this over and over and over again. And just like Jesus, at times, Paul will be rejected. And so he will do just like Jesus. Jesus says, woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, right? Uh, Capernaum. If the miracles done in you would have been done in Tyre and Sidon. Why? Because those are Gentile territories. They would have repented in sackcloth. What's Jesus saying there? Jesus actually sets up this paradigm. That when the people of God, the remnant of God, come, they will accept. But others who should have accepted will reject. And at that point, shake the dust off your feet and go to the Gentiles because they'll be invited into the wedding feast as well. And they'll accept that invitation. Does that sound like Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels? So now you're seeing this come to fruition. Remember what I said. How did we get here? This is just that continuation of the gospel that Jesus has been teaching. I always want to caution against some of the anti-Semitic views, though, that have taken place throughout church history. I just want to pay attention to that dynamic. That When Paul is strategically reaching out to people here, he is taking the Messiah first to the Messianic people. And that's important for us to understand. Notice bullet point number two. We're going to see that like Peter, like Jesus, um, there are going to be miracles that are performed. A lame man's going to be healed. He's going to leap up to his feet. And you're going to be like, I think I've seen this before. Yes, you have. Twice, actually. Jesus and Peter. And Paul's going to face opposition, just like Jesus, just like Peter. So we have kind of a part three story. Jesus, Peter, Paul, that takes place in the book of Acts. And you're in scene one of Paul's ministry that's going to take place. Um, Let me talk briefly about Paul's travel companions. and, And this is all still introduction. And then we'll dive into chapter 13. Number one, Barnabas, I've already mentioned, he is from Cyprus. His name is Joseph. His nickname is Barnabas, son of encouragement. Does it ever get confusing how ancient names work? They don't have a first name, middle name, last name like we do. It's like nickname, 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 nickname. Son of is about what you get. That's how the ancient context worked. And and so you recognize that many of these uh, people, men and women who are mentioned here, have multiple names. And some of that's depending on which context they're in, Greek, Jewish, home. I have some friends who spent three, four hours yesterday from Afghanistan. Some of them have two or three names. One of them's their American name, and one of them's the name that they actually go by. Some of them have multiple Facebook accounts because of that. They have the, kind of their American friend, English-speaking Facebook account, and their friends from Afghanistan. So, so notice, this isn't so otherworldly. The same thing happens with my friends who are from Kenya who attend Ozark Christian College. They have a name in Swahili that they go by. One of my favorites, his name is Mountain Man, if it's translated. He, he doesn't go by Mountain Man here, but I'm going, you should, right? You should. <laughs> like, go by Mountain Man. I want that name, right? And so, so there are names that we, we understand how names work. Names become a cultural phenomenon. But Paul's name is going to shift. He's, gonna, he's going by Saul, his Hebrew name as in Saul, King Saul, tribe of Benjamin. Oh, yeah, Saul's from the same tribe as like King Saul. He's named after him. Oh, that's interesting. But he's going to go by his Greek name, Paul. And there's a lot of debate about the political connections of Paul being, you're going to find a governor named Paulus, the Latin version, uh, in our text today. And it's going to be interesting to me because Acts mentions Paul's name change right after the conversion of a guy named Paul. It's weird to me. 
Like, okay, if we're, if we're going to do this, this Gentile conversion thing, I probably ought to go by this name. I, I don't know. I don't know the reason for it. But it's just like thrown out in the book of Acts. And from this point out, Saul was called Paul. And you're like the rest of the book, you're like, okay, Paul's first now, and Barnabas is second, and he's called Paul, not Saul. What happened? But I think part of it's his missionary strategy of saying, if I'm going to communicate now to Gentiles, this is the name that I'm going to go by with these particular people. And so we find that happen here. John Mark is also a young man. Now, we're going to talk about John Mark. John Mark's intriguing to me. Um, we, we do find out in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, that this is uh, John Mark's house. Mary, his mom, is where Peter went back to when Peter was broken out of prison. The, the resurrection kind of moment. He went back to the house of John Mark, Mary's home, and the church was meeting there. It's interesting to me. Because one of the church traditions is that this may actually be the home where Pentecost took place, and rewind a little bit further, Passover took place, rewind to that moment, that John Mark may be, as in the Gospel of Mark, may be the young man in the Garden of Gethsemane, that when Jesus is arrested, has his cloak pulled off, and he runs away naked in the Garden. That's embarrassing. Now, I will say, if it's the same guy, the shoe fits. Well, the cloak fits, we could say it that way. Um, this is a guy who runs away. Now, the other, to be fair, the other disciples did as well. But John Mark is going to, in this text, abandon Paul and Barnabas. He seems to be related to Barnabas. Um, but Paul is going to later on have a conflict with Barnabas over John Mark. Now, I'm going to forecast way out, because later on in Paul's ministry, Colossians, prison epistles, Colossians, Philemon, and then a final letter, 2 Timothy, Paul's going to say about John Mark, he's useful to me. And there's going to be some restoration that's going to take place. But I, but I want you to pay attention to John Mark, because he's a, kind of this uh, tertiary, this third-level character under Barnabas, under Paul, that kind of gets out of the spotlight a bit. But he's an intriguing character. And I think when it comes to biblical narratives, we're meant to see some things about ourselves in these characters, in our own discipleship, and how we interact with the gospel, and interact with Jesus, and interact with even uh, opposition as we face it. Um, so we will see those characters, uh, as well as a few others, play out. Uh, questions thus far? We haven't even gotten into the text. And you know, we have 35 minutes left. So, questions so far? All right. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. We can move through this rather quickly. I do want you to notice that there are, there are a group of teachers and, and prophets uh, in Antioch. The thing I want you to notice most of all is that Paul and Barnabas bracket this group. I think that's intentional. Um, but inside of the group, it's a very diverse group. I've already mentioned this. Uh, we, we have mention of ethnic background. In fact, skin color seems to be the Latin word that is used. Um, we, have a dynamic, we have a dynamic of someone who was in the courtyard of Herod the Tetrarch. Oh, so we have someone who's an upper, uh, upper government official assistant. Yeah, we have someone connected. And, and this is very intentional for us to be able to understand that the church is very diverse at this point in time. Notice what they're doing. Worshiping, fasting, praying, laying on of hands, and sending. Sometimes we've turned this, Michael alluded to this, into more formal ordination. But more than this, this is the church equipping people and saying, we're going we're gonna to ask God to be with you in this task. And we want to empower you for this task. I kind of wonder, uh, being even a new elder, um, if we shouldn't do this even more than we do. This laying on of hands, praying for someone and saying, uh, I, we as the church, we as leaders want to commission you to teach our kids in Sunday school. We want to commission you to go to Japan. We do those kinds of things. This is less, going back in our church history, this is less of a formal ordination so that you have a certificate to hang on your wall to say, I am an ordained minister of such and such church. And more of a family activity of saying, I am empowering you with authority and responsibility to go and carry this out. And so maybe this is something we should do more regularly, regardless of whether or not you have a degree uh, from an institution that says you are formally trained in ministry. Um, so notice what they're doing. They're fasting and praying and worshiping and laying on of hands and then sending. And this happens over and over again in the book of Acts. And it happens here too. And I'm grateful for that. That over and over again, we're seeing students leave this place and go other places, but also some of them stay here and go places or go to their neighbor. And so it's an intriguing dynamic that we find uh, that this laying on of hands happens over and over again in the Bible. 
Um, and we've kind of turned it into this official thing. And it, I think more than anything, is meant to be like when I put my hand on the back of my son and say, son, I want you to go out back and mow the lawn. You have my authority. You have been trained. Go mow the lawn. And he goes, with my authority, under there, and with that responsibility then to mow the backyard. Sorry about analogy, but it's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah, question. Just asking about uh, time frame. I know we talked about, you know, yeah. It's a good question. With, with the commissioning of, you know, they go into an area, they, they pray with these folks, and then all of a sudden they're gone. Is that a yeah. year or two later, or is that a month or two later? Yeah, that, that is a really great observation. So scholars talk about the book of Acts and other not just the other, not just uh, the book of Acts, talk about the Bible. And talk about timelines sometimes seem very telescoped. So you get the highlights, but you don't always get, which is why Michael was talking about the mundane moments. You don't always get the in-between time. So we don't have all of that, like how long have these people been believers? The timeline, Herod uh, Agrippa dies about 44, <coughs> according to what we have historical accounts. So let me kind of build that timeline out a little bit for you. And, and again, the chronology here is educated guesses based on what we know from a historical reconstruction. Jesus' crucifixion is around 30 or 33. It's, it is either 30 or 33. We can nail that down pretty specifically, even to the day, because it's Passover. So, but it, the date is either 30 or 33. So we're about 11 years later. So a lot's happened, because right at, at Pentecost... So we're still 30, 33, is when those believers went out to Cyprus and Cyrene, and then some of those believers came back into Antioch. So some of these people may have been believers now for a decade or so. So it feels like it's like just yesterday that Jesus left and ascended, but about a decade's gone by. That really does help us, though, when it comes to, so what does a mature believer look like? Well, in America, we're like, you know, well, we've, been, we've had such a Christian heritage, you know, mature believer is someone who is a Christian from the time they were a little kid. You, you didn't have that possibility back then. Like everyone was a, Peter was a believer for 12 years, right? So there's a, I mean, in the sense of like a baptized believer following, okay, he had three years of following with Jesus. Okay, that's still pretty new. So that dynamic is interesting for us. Um, even when it comes to interactions with government, they, they didn't know what a Christian like leader looked like. Like we're going to have the, one of the first ones here. Centurion is one of the first ones. They had, they've had priests come to the faith. So they have Jewish leaders coming to the faith. But like a Roman civic leader, that's like Nero's the emperor. So when Paul's writing, Peter's writing, submit yourself to the emperor, like that's writing to like a, something that is very um, foreign to us when it comes to a concept. So is that, is that helpful for you? Okay, that's good. So this, this dynamic is, is good for us to remember that, that Saul and Barnabas are sent out, not as a rebel, they're sent out on behalf of the church. Um, this, this is a part of them acting in authority uh, under the Holy Spirit, uh, but also on behalf of the church. Now, what I want to do in, in verses 4 through 12 is land on the island of Cyprus. Um, notice what I've tried to do in the outline is tried to give you some bullet points with arrows to say, okay, let's follow Paul's route. So Paul starts in Antioch of Syria. He goes 16 miles down the road to a port city. Now, when you start to follow this route, you go, oh, this is all based upon like the ancient highway systems and naval routes. Yeah, that, that's exactly what Paul used. He used the technology given to him to spread the gospel. Now, I tell my students, think about what Paul would do in our world today. Highway systems, airplanes, internet, ability to video stream. Do you think Paul would leverage that technology for the sake of spreading the gospel to other people? I promise you he would. Okay? Because he used the Greek language. He used philosophy, the Roman road, naval systems, the Roman military, his Roman citizenship, everything at his disposal to spread the gospel to other people. I find that inspiring and at times deeply convicting. So he goes down to a port city about 16 miles away, Seleucia. Most of these names are foreign to us. Like the name Orinogo to my family in Colorado when I tell them we go to church in Orinogo. Where? Well, it's about 10 miles outside of Joplin. Okay, I don't care. That's how we tip it, and that's okay. But notice for Paul, this is, and even the audience here, they, they know these regions. So again, part of the reason for the map is for us to go, okay, what is going on here? For them, they would have been able to click this by. So Paul takes a ship. 
you could ferry a ship, uh, pay for passage on a ship, and Paul does this often, and he goes 60 miles uh, to uh, Cyprus. So he is um, on this island of Cyprus. He lands in a port city called Salamis. It used to be the capital, um, pre-Roman capital. And then he goes across the island to the other side, and he's in another port city, which is the current Roman capital, Apaphos. So what has Paul just done? He's just traveled to two major cities uh, that would have been very common for someone who's traveling. When he gets there, he meets someone who is the Gentile proconsul. His name is Sergius Paulus. And we have in this narrative, and, and you can dive out down deeper into this narrative and read it. I would encourage you to do so. Uh, he has a council, like all ancient leaders did, of advisors. One of them is this, he's called a Jewish false prophet, but his name is Bar-Jesus. That's interesting to me. Um, and his nickname is Elymas. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Let me, let me start to dissect this character for a moment. Then we'll get back to Sergius Paulus. Uh, this gentleman, from what we find in the book of Acts, um, his name, Bar-Jesus, means son of Jesus or son of Joshua would be the Hebrew name. What does Joshua mean? Yahweh saves. What does Jesus' name mean? Yahweh saves. Okay, so Jesus does what his name means. Names matter. Paul calls him in chapter 13, verse 10, son of Satan or son of the devil. Okay, he's playing on, the, uh, playing on his name. Okay, and, and Paul, you know, Jesus does this to the Pharisees as well. You're acting just like your father, is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Um, your father, you think, is God. He's actually the devil. You're acting like, don't take the Lord's name in vain, okay? It's a big deal. And so we have this same kind of thing here. He's called a false prophet. And I want you to echo back to the kings in ancient Israel who had advisors that were called false, pro false prophets. What did the false prophets often do or say in the Old Testament? Here's number one. They often led the people away to idolatry. Okay, that's a possibility. Number two, they often told the people that things were going to be okay, even though God said they were not going to be okay. Think about this when it comes to the nature of being a false prophet. God's not really going to judge you. You really don't need salvation. Okay, so you get some of the dynamics of the Old Testament prophet and why sometimes an advisor can be called a false prophet and that be echoed into the New Testament. And we find that echo here with this man who is nicknamed Elymas. That name, as far as we can tell, means magician, which is what Luke is saying in the text. Um, we could honestly abbreviate that and be more familiar with the term magi. That's what that word means. Um, as in political advisor, now, we could take that all the way back to Egypt, can't we? And go, Egypt, magicians, advisors to Pharaoh? Yes. Moses and Pharaoh, remember that little interaction? And it was the Magi who were opposing Moses and trying to get Pharaoh to not do what God was asking him to do? Oh, does that look like this story? This story where this advisor, this false prophet is saying, uh, don't listen to Paul, don't listen to the gospel, don't listen to this message, um, and gets in the way. And Paul says, you are taking the, the way, the road. This is literally the word road here. And rather than straightening it, like John the Baptist did, and preparing the way for the gospel, which is what a prophet's supposed to do, John the Baptist, instead you're making it crooked. And you're inhibiting the way of the gospel getting to this person. So all of this imagery is very Old Testament packed. It's connected to Jesus and John the Baptist and Moses and Egypt. It's connected to even Babylon because the Romans modeled from Babylon and Persia this idea of having Eastern astrologers and mystics and magicians as advisors. And we actually can read this in, in Roman history. That oftentimes, sometimes they're Jewish even, Oftentimes, in the mix of their advisors, they would still have magi. Thus, when magi come in the Christmas story from the east, it's this warning to Rome that there's another king that's an eastern king that's rising up, and the east recognizes this king. Oh, the magi story is not just a little quaint story to put on your mantle. It's a very politically charged story that takes place. So we have this, this gentleman that is here. Now, there's some irony here. So Paul basically, and this calls judgment on him. You're, 
not allowing this person to come to the gospel. So may you not see. So he's blinded. And then he needs to be led by the hand. Does that sound like anyone, I don't know, in Acts chapter 9? Like as in Paul himself, okay? So he has this Paul moment. Now remember the James and Peter story. James is buried. Peter, resurrection, is let out. We have a similar echo here of the Paul story. Because what we have is this man is blinded, but Sergius Paulus is the one who sees. Oh, the scales fall from his eyes. And he sees and he comes to the gospel. So it's an echo of Paul's story, but just broken out into two different characters. And this is when we now have the switch where Paul, Saul becomes known as or called by his uh, more Gentile name, Paul. I, I love this narrative, but I also love how God works in this particular capacity. And, and God does what ancients recognize all along. God has a way of repeating history to teach us lessons, doesn't he? Now, we've always known this. Ancient historians knew this as well. Learn from history is the point. And so why does, why does the book of Acts have these echoes? Because God does some of the same things to remind us, to teach us, to remind us of how we are to respond. So maybe in Paul's own story, we should be asking the question, um, when it comes to our, ourselves, do, do I open my eyes to see what God wants to do? Do I make the paths crooked for someone else? Do I get in the way of the gospel? Do I stand in someone's way or do I actually make the paths clear to help someone get to the gospel and be able to see Jesus more clearly and not just see me so I can maintain, what's he wanting? Maintain power, maintain position, getting in the way. Same thing the Pharisees did, okay? You teach false teachers, you brood of vipers. Why? Because you lay this on because you're jealous and you get in the way of the gospel. Uh, So this is that story that takes place. I I find, again, some of the irony there humorous as well as um, at times convicting. Um, And this is is also the shift not only of Saul's name to Paul, but also of Saul or Paul being listed first in front of Barnabas. All right, questions questions about that particular story. It's an intriguing story. Um, One of the the theories about where Paul's going to go next is actually that Sergius Paulus has family because of his name Pauli, uh, again, going to the Latin of that, that would be a plural Latin, that he possibly has family up in the other Antioch, Antioch Pisidia, where we're going. Why? Well, because there is a family, a wealthy family, that we actually have in historical records from that region. I don't know. But it is intriguing to me that Paul converts Paul here, and then he takes off and is going off into this region that, that is, in, in many ways, um, familiar, but at the same time, new to the gospel. So I don't know necessarily if that's true, but historians trace that as a possibility. So let's follow his route. He leaves Cyprus. They go up to Perga, which again is another port city. It's at this point in verse 13 that John Mark leaves. Now that word left there can just be, hey, see you later, going home. More often it's used of abandonment. Was John Mark homesick? Was he afraid? I think there's possibilities of both. But John Mark leaves. This is going to cause conflict in chapter 15 after the Jerusalem council in chapter 15. I want to dissect that word council next time we're together. Um, but chapter 15, after that's at the very end of that chapter, there's going to be conflict between Barnabas and Paul over John Mark and this particular story. So come tuck it in your pocket. Keep it for next week. Um, but we've already mentioned John. So we want to notice that little highlight about his story. And then we want to keep following Paul. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. So Paul's going to go in. He's going to make his way all the way to Antioch in Pisidia. Um, He's going to preach again the same model. Again, summarizing, telescoping the text here, but you can read it. He's going to have the same, same model. Go to the synagogue first. And then if they invite me back, I'm going to go back again. And we find an extended sermon by Paul in this section. You can read it, but it's going to sound an awful lot like, not in a bad way, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 7. Why? This is a Jewish audience. So he retells the story. Here's who David was. Here are the Psalms. He quotes the Psalms. You will not let your righteous one see decay. Well, David's dead. We can go to his, his grave, maybe even, depending on what you believe about kind of the words in Jerusalem, maybe even today you can go to his grave. And yet there's something bigger going on here. So Paul preaches a very Jewish-focused sermon and leads them to the place where he offers them forgiveness. 
So this sermon is extended to them. We find that eventually some of them respond positively, but others react negatively. And again, we have this conflict that happens where Paul turns, uh, chapter 13, verse 48, again, summarizing quite a bit. Paul turns again and he faces uh, and offers the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, So this dynamic happens over and over again. We find it again in Antioch of Pisidia. Uh, this, This motivation of kind of the... And here's where I'm at. I'm at chapter 13, verse 45. Um, This opposition was caused by something similar we've seen in Jesus' story, Peter's story, and now in Paul's story, jealousy. Okay? They're jealous. So motivation matters. And one one of the motivators that's clearly given us in the Gospels of this Jewish opposition, not all Jewish opposition, they become known as Judaizers. Okay? Um, but this Jewish opposition is because of jealousy. And, and the second factor would be the fact that they're allowing Gentiles to come in. So those two factors become reason for opposition oftentimes in this conflict. Yeah. Um, with, with what they're teaching, especially in the synagogues, it, um, yeah. do you think it would be a lot of, uh, as well, you know, obviously talking about the Old Testament, um, but even more of the prophecies, especially from Jesus coming yeah, it's, it's interesting to me. Let me say one thing, and then I'm going to get to your question. Uh, over and over again, we see the same thing happen. Luke 4, Jesus opens a scroll in a synagogue, reads scripture, and says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's Isaiah. Peter does the same thing. Now Paul does the same thing. So notice they are using scripture to say, look, God is doing what he said he was going to do. Um, so that dynamic is, is helpful for us. The The our construct of what we think of prophecy is different than even, I think, what the New Testament uses prophecy to talk about. We tend to think of prophecy um, like a one-to-one correlation. Old Testament said this, Jesus fulfilled it exactly in this way. And it's a little bit more of a picture. The Old Testament prophesied this, and we saw it originally there, not necessarily across. We saw it originally there, and it looked kind of like a fulfillment, but then it came into full, it's like a Polaroid picture. And I can only say that to this group, right? It's like a Polaroid picture. And like when you finally shook it, you went, oh, that's what it's about. And so, you know, when it comes to Old Testament, um, some in even today, rabbinic circles would say, no, 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 here's where it's fulfilled. And maybe there's still a fulfillment out here. It's not coming to full focus. But when Matthew, God, Matthew's gospel says, this was fulfilled, this was fulfilled, this was fulfilled. Sometimes you're like, is that what it was talking about? I thought it was talking about a young maiden who was um, going to have a baby in Isaiah chapter 7, and that was going to be a sign of judgment that was going to take place. And Matthew goes, no, 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 that's, a, that, that's not just a young maiden, that's a virgin birth. And it's fulfilled here, and this is what that looks like. So, so prophecy growing up, I wanted it to be kind of the one-to-one, if I could just give you the list of 100 prophecies, it would convince you. And it's, it's not necessarily not that, but it's definitely more nuanced than that. Is that, is that helpful for you? Okay, so Paul's doing that with these Psalms because David says, you will not let your righteous one face decay. Well, what's David saying there? Well, I believe in a resurrection maybe. There's kind of this like original nuance of that. But then there's the, oh, you mean resurrection. So you'll, you'll always let someone from your lineage sit on the throne. Oh, you mean like Solomon and then going all the way back down and then maybe a new king. So we have even the Maccabean revolt, but it's not a Davidic king. So when's the Messiah coming? Oh, here it is. So Old Testament prophecy works, tends to work in that way. Paul does that in this sermon for the Jewish people. It's not that he doesn't do this for the Gentiles, but notice, like, instead, what does he do? He uses their philosophy and their Greek gods and says, we're going to see this throughout the rest of our time together. You see this idol you have here that says to an unknown God, let me tell you who he is. So he starts with the context of his people, starts with some of their own um, beliefs and presuppositions, and is able to work to Jesus from each of those. He does it in a genius way. I I think it's part of his his impact, is he's becoming all things to all people, not as a way of compromise, but a way of compassion, of building a road to the gospel for people. Um, let, me, let me walk through, we have about 12 minutes, let me walk through a couple more things. Let us get, let's get to, to Derby and on our way home, and, and we can ask, answer a few more questions. Um, moving rather quickly, uh, Paul is, because of persecution, okay, because he's going to be threatened to be stoned. You know what stoning is? We saw that with Stephen. Ironic? Let me just pause there. Yeah, a little bit ironic that Saul, approved as a young man, 
Okay, now we've gone by just a couple of years is all. Okay, so Saul approved of Stephen's execution by stoning. And now he's going to be facing stonings multiple times. And in fact, one of these is going to leave him where everyone thinks he's dead. I don't know what they do. Do they like, kick him? Is he dead? Um, do they take his pulse? I mean, you recognize like some of our own, I mean, they had medical standards um, based upon Greek ideas. Um, but they think he's dead. They bring him back. And it's not a miracle, but he's still alive. He's still kicking. He has to wait a bit. And then he's going to travel again. So we're going to go to Iconium. He's going to preach. He's going to face opposition. He's going to have to run away. He's going to stay for a bit. But then he's going to, he's going to have to flee because he's going to be stoned. Now, notice, Paul's not like eager to be martyred. Okay, there's, there's some tension in the text here. Because he's willing to be martyred, but he's not eager to be martyred. There's some tension here that says, sometimes God can use persecution to scatter us, and sometimes we need to face the persecution head on. How do you decide that? I don't know. I think that's really hard. You, you study Bonhoeffer in uh, Nazi Germany. He flees to America, then he decides to go back. Interesting to me. Okay, so, so we have a dynamic here to where we need to trust the Holy Spirit, and, and we find this. Eventually, they make their way, because of this, to another province. It's not in the jurisdiction. So think of county lines or state lines. They go to Laconia, and they go to the city of Lystra. It's across the province line. So they wanted to stone him, but they don't have authority over there. So they make their way in. They heal a lame man. Similar story, what we see Jesus do. Okay, so that you know, I have authority to forgive sins. There's that story echo. Same kind of thing that we see Paul, uh, Peter do in Acts chapter 3. Paul does it here. We can get into the miracles. We've talked about miracles. I want to get into the response. The people think that Paul and Barnabas are gods. Now, there's a good reason why. There's actually a, a, a myth. Ovid tells this myth. This is actually really helpful for us. There, there's a, a myth, uh, you, know, you know myths and mythology. There's a mythological story of um, both uh, Zeus and Hermes. So notice their Roman names, Jupiter, and is it, um, uh, i try to think who it is. Oh, Mercury. Yeah, Jupiter, Mercury. Okay, they come to this area. Now, even in Ovid's myth, it's in this region. So this is important. They come to this region, and they're looking for hospitality. Hospitality in the ancient world, is hospitality important in the ancient world? Yes, it is. They're coming as two gods in the form of and the appearance of a man. Now, the Greeks did not believe in incarnation like what Jesus came as, like God in the flesh, would be anathema. But they came in the appearance of. That's why the Greeks had a hard time with the incarnation of Jesus. But they come and they look like two men. They're looking for hospitality. Thousands of homes don't give them hospitality until this older couple, it's always an older couple, some of you are great with hospitality, invites them in. And it's at this point in the myth, Ovid's myth, that the two gods uh, cause judgment to happen on the thousand households around and cause this one household of the older couple to become the temple of Zeus, temple of Jupiter, and they become a priestly family in this temple. What's the myth? How did we, how did we get here with a temple that's now in the city, right? That's the myth. So how did we get here with that temple? These two come in, they heal. Now, put that story in the background. You better respond with hospitality if that's your family story, right? Like if these two guys are the two gods and you don't, you don't want the judgment that's part of that mythology that's part of your background. So what do they do? Get the fattened calf. Get the priest. Let's go, right? So the priest comes down. They get ready to fatten it. And you see what Paul's response is. They tear their clothes because what? That's a sign of blasphemy. And they say, no, no, no. That's not who we are. Now this quickly pivots because people come from the previous two towns and they are causing some of the same, they bring some of the same conflict that took place there. This quickly pivots to the place where they are, once again, going to be persecuted um, in this dynamic. What I want us to see with the story of the two gods is that over and over again, Paul is going to now have to show those who were part of the Greco-Roman world with the paganism, the mythology that is there, how to get to the one and only God. That's a, that's a world, that's a, how did we get here, cataclysmic shift, monotheism. Why? Every city had their own God. Every, we could take tables. Every little trade guild, if you were a carpenter, if you were a metalsmith, every one of those had their own little God. Every family had their own little gods in their little household. How do you get to the place where you go from that to there is one God and he is the God over all people? Well, it's, that's a big shift. 
So we're going to see that Paul is going to confront this and, and be confronted by this over and over again in the course of time. This is a small example. It's going to be unpacked a little bit further later. So we may even echo back to this. But we have this phrase, the living God. It's an Old Testament phrase. Because if you're going to compare God to the idols, God is the living one, the creator. They are not. They are mute. They are stone. They are wood. So Acts chapter 17, we'll unpack that a little bit further, but we're going to see, an, or see a little uh, hint of it here. This is going to eventually lead Paul finally to Derby. It's still in Laconia. It's still in the same province. All we have there in verse 21 is, and Paul made many disciples. And then they turn around and they start heading back. Now, what I want to do at the very end of our time is I actually want to turn over to 2 Timothy. It's kind of weird. Um, I teach 2 Timothy, so this is always in the forefront of my brain when I come to this part of Acts. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. Timothy is from the city of Lystra. Oh, Paul came into Lystra being stoned and left Lystra being stoned. And Timothy is now a little bit older. He has followed Paul for 20 years. This is now 23 years later. Okay, so we're in... It is 64, 65. This is probably 66 AD. And here's what I want you to hear. Paul's about ready to die again, this time for real, under Rome, under Nero. He's leaving his faith. This is his will to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he wants to remind Timothy to continue to endure suffering, just like he did. Why am I telling you all this? Because what Paul does is he goes all the way back to the beginning and says, Timothy, remember when I came into town and I preached the gospel in Lystra to your mom and your grandma? His mom and grandma are mentioned in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. Remember Lois and Eunice and and how when I came in, they accepted the gospel? I think this is the trip where they accepted Christ. Why? Because the next time Paul comes in town, we're going to get there, chapter 16, Timothy's going to go with Paul. You have to give enough time there for Timothy's mom and grandma to become mature believers in Christ. Maybe it's on the next trip, but I think it's on this trip that they become believers, or shortly after. And so Paul says in 2 Timothy, remember when I came into town, I was being persecuted, I was suffering? Timothy, you continue to endure. Why do I say that? Because on the return route, I've given you three things that Paul does on the way back to all these churches. He goes back to all these churches, he adds one, um, at Atalia, it's another port city. But he does these three things in all those churches. He goes back and he reminds them that they're going to face tribulations. Do you sometimes need to have that reminder as a follower of Jesus? Hey, this isn't always going to be easy. I just need to remind you. Sometimes, as a follower of Christ, you're going to face opposition. And sometimes the world and the culture, and even your own family, will not like you. It's going to be hard. Number one. Number two, he goes back and he establishes healthy elders, and you need to think more of family with this dynamic. Elders in the Jewish world were the, it's more tribal, uh, cultural, familial. So he appoints those who are more mature in their faith to become leaders over these groups of people, this, this family unit that are believers, Christians in each of these little towns. This is part of why, as part of our movement, we have elder-led churches. Um, And so elders are appointed in each of these towns. Now, we start to see a transition in the book of Acts from apostles to elders as being the primary leaders in the churches. That's interesting to me. And Paul is, I think, intentionally establishing that here. And then number three, Paul finally makes it back to Antioch in Syria. We were at Antioch, Pisidia. Okay. Again, about a 600-mile or so uh, trip one way, 1,200 miles or so round trip, if the math is correct on the mileage. We don't know exactly all the routes Paul took. Um, But Paul comes back, and what does he do? That same stereotypical thing I talked about with missionaries coming back to your home church when you were young. He tells the stories and reports back what's taken place. Now, that's part of the power of the gospel, isn't it? It's just telling the stories of how the gospel changes people. And so Paul comes back. He tells this story. But problem, just like the conversion of Cornelius, this is going to cause conflict back in Jerusalem and Antioch as well. So when we get back together, what we're going to do next week is chapter 15, like Acts chapter 11 and and 10, where Peter had to say, hey, Cornelius was converted, but now I'm going to have like a court case where I have to give testimony of here's what's happened. Paul reported back. Now we have to go to Jerusalem and go, here's what's happened, and these Gentiles are coming in, and they're going to have to ask the question, 
So what does it mean to come to Jesus as a Gentile? Do you have to get circumcised? Do you have to become Jewish first? Do you, can you eat meat sacrificed to idols? Because they do all the time. I mean, that's like where the butcher's at. Is at the idol factory. So like, can, can you do that? You see, these complicated questions are, the, how did we get here? And okay, what do we do next? Like Acts chapter 15 is another pause going, oh, whoa, God did that. Okay, so what does this mean? And the book of Galatians, if you're wanting to prepare for next week, the short little book of Galatians that Paul writes, that's about Jewish and Gentile relations and how we can be one. There's no longer Jew or Gentile in Christ, Galatians 3.28. Galatians is, is in many ways an overlay to what's happening in Acts chapter 15. How did we get here? And the answer to some of those questions. So that's where we'll be able to get back. We may chop off, 15 is what we're scheduled to do. We may start to get into Paul's next missionary journey, uh, his second one after that as well. We're going to try to try to get through all this in the month of April uh, without Easter Sunday uh, meeting. Uh, so I think we're, we're trucking along. We're getting there. All right, the friends, thank you. 1020. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.